This is episode 163 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Bone Tissue Regeneration with Dr. Joy Wu. Hey, everybody. We are Dr. Daylon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. And if listening to this podcast isn't enough, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast, where we do our best to update you on all the latest news in stem cell research as it's happening. Today, we have Dr. Joy Wu from Stanford University on the podcast to talk about her research into skeletal development and the bone marrow hematopoietic niche. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news. That's coming right up. But first, we'd like to remind our listeners about ESC and IPSC News, one of Stem Cell's free weekly scientific newsletters, something that I actually read every single week. Super useful. ESC and IPSC News summarizes all of the latest research, news, jobs, and events in ESC and IPSC research and delivers it right to your inbox every Wednesday. So save time and keep current with ESC and IPSC News. Subscribe for free at ESC cellnews.com. So let's jump right into it. First paper I'm going to talk about, well, actually, both of the papers I'm going to talk about are from Nature Biotech, Nature Biotechnology. First paper's title is Targeting the Cytoskeleton to Direct Pancreatic Differentiation of Human Pluripotent Stem Cells. This is coming from the lab of Jeffrey Millman. First author is Nathaniel Hagribe. So this is something that a lot of people are working on, improving the differentiation of pluripotent stem cells into pancreatic beta cells. We actually just had Priya Irima on the podcast recently. She's doing some work on this. We've got, you know, there's Doug Melton over there on the East Coast, who's also been a pioneer in this field as well. But we can still do a better job in terms of more accurately fine-tuning the differentiation process of stem cell-derived beta cells. So that's kind of what this paper was focusing on. So the methods for differentiating, you know, pluripotent stem cells towards pancreatic beta cells is, you know, it's promising for cell therapy for, for diabetes. That's the, the big application here. And the differentiation relies on precise activation and repression of different signaling pathways, you know, like you do with any other type of differentiation, right? With growth factors and small molecules, which guides pluripotent stem cells in a stepwise fashion through endodermal and ultimately pancreatic progenitor stages. And the progenitors can make non-pancreatic lineages too, like intestine or hepatocytes. And so you want really a focused differentiation, right? You want specifically pancreatic beta cells um, specified in the place of, you know, those other cell types, other endodermal cell types. So you've got, you know, NKX 6.1, which is, uh, the marker of pancreatic progenitors that has to be generated before you actually get other, uh, specified genes turning on. But the key is you don't want those other lineages. What they actually did here in this paper was to kind of fine tune that differentiation process by adding a, regulator of the actin cytoskeleton, latrunculin A, 
to depolymerize the cytoskeleton during the endocrine induction. And they're able to develop a, a two-dimensional differentiation protocol. Like A lot of people are shifting towards suspension-based differentiation these days, especially for pancreatic you know, beta cell differentiation. But they actually found that if you can add this latrunculin A at the right stage of the pancreatic differentiation process, you have like actually more mature pancreatic beta cells down the road. Uh, these cells are able to express higher markers of pancreatic beta cells. And most importantly, they're able to release a higher amount of insulin, actually, when they're transplanted in vivo. So their insul insulin response in response to, to glucose is much higher than you would get with other uh, two-dimensional differentiation protocols. So it's uh, – and the important thing is they were actually able to demonstrate in vivo that these custom, you know, improved stem cell-derived beta cells can really powerfully reduce diabetes in, in a mouse model of diabetes, like, you know, very severe diabetes. These things were able to drop the levels of uh, blood glucose down to wild-type levels in a way that hasn't really been done before with two-dimensional uh, derived pancreatic beta cells. So it's a, it's, I think it's a, it's a nice incremental protocol, incremental step to improving pancreatic beta cell differentiation. You've got the in vivo application there. So that's kind of why it's in nature biotech. You have the translational application. Uh, you know, diabetes is something that a bunch of people are working on in the stem cell field. This has kind of been one of the hot topics for the stem cell field in terms of making better beta cells. And I think, you know, like I mentioned, we've got a bunch of different people working on this. We've got Semitherapeutics from Doug Melton. We've got, you know, Fias site down in San Diego. A uh, lot of folks are working on this. So if we can make mature beta cells and we can make billions of them really easily in, in a format that anybody can use, then I think this is, you know, it's, it's a very powerful thing. Yeah, I think that's the hook there, what you ended on and why it's in Nature Biotech is that we're wrestling now. I think that, that the, the, the proofs of principle have kind of been thrown out there. And now it's about like really translating it in a scalable way. And this is, this is one of those, I think, the fruits of that effort. The, um, the idea here being that you can go into 2D, right? I think that, that I, maybe that's what we finally arrived at is that we can't well, there may be ways to scale at 3D, but it may be that 2D is more practical. Um, and this is where I, I think also it gets the nature biotech credit is because it's a nice innovation in terms of the mechanism of, of saying, instead of trying to recapitulate the growth environment of 3D, let's just hack the cytoskeleton and mm -hmm. make the cells like think they're in 3D or something. I don't know. It just goes drills down into one, just practical ways that you can make 2D more like 3D. Yeah, But then it invites, I think, some really exciting questions about, really, is this the mediator of, and the sole mediator, perhaps, of that 3D uh, input being recognized by the cellular machinery as, a, you know, a, a more native growth environment? That's a really kind of exciting question. I think that uh, Dr. Millman, who was my first solo interview, I'd like to say, when I went solo nice. on the show, so we got to bring him back. Uh, mm -hmm. Check that one out, guys. It was called You Beta Watch Out. I was very clever with the names back then. <laughs> but um, we're going to get him back to tell us about this because I think this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of mechanism of cytoskeleton and uh, control of cell differentiation, which we've had glancing blows at before in terms of stiffness. But now this is getting really into the nitty gritty and a very specific cell type towards a really important practical end.
Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, you touched on something. This is 2D differentiation. We're not talking about three-dimensional or suspension-based differentiation here. I think, you know, there's a trend in the organoid and stem cell field to shift everything to three dimensions because three dimensions is supposed to be better for differentiation and a more accurate representation of the in vivo, what actually happens in vivo, right? I think this is nice because this is showing, you know, hey, let's back up for a minute. You know, there's some application, there's still some use for two-dimensional differentiation. You know, everything was done here in like T7 five flasks, which, you know, folks have been using for a really long time. I think, you know, it's a little tricky to shift everything you do to a suspension-based differentiation. But they're saying, you know, you can do your usual cell culture that you've been doing for years and years and years uh, in a two-dimensional format to get really good cells down the road. Yeah, but before we get too excited about going back into 2D, Arun, I'm bringing us back to life here with the organoid we live in an organoid world, okay? And, you know, one might say that the grandpapa of the organoid, or, you know, one of the, the many forefathers of the organoid is our man, Hans Clevers. We covered him very heavily in the last episode, and at the risk of fatigue, we're going to throw one more in paper because he's, he's out of control. He keeps producing, so we <laughs> keep covering him. And also, so graciously, uh, the Hubrecht agreed to put him on the show. So we're going to continue the, uh, you know, marathon coverage of the Cleavers Stay Lab. tuned. Stay, Stay tuned. tuned. We're getting into it with Hans himself, but you'll have to wait for that. For now, we're just going to talk about his work again. This is a cool story. It's a technical report out of the Hubrecht, Hans Cleavers Lab, Nature Cell Biology. But I think it's really going to bust open the door in terms of gene editing uh, towards uh, more kind of mechanistic insight into cells, generating tools. Uh, this is Nokin, okay? But Nokin in human organoids. And, and we're all excited about organoids, right? Because you can gain insight into the physiological developmental processes. You can model disease and all that stuff. And more than that, you can edit them. You can manipulate the genome and see what genes contribute and or whatever functions contribute to, to the differentiation or function of those cells. Um, and CRISPR-Cas, of course, you know, we, we have the trifecta here. We have transgenesis with CRISPR, we have organoids, we have stem cells, uh, and we have Hans Clevers, of course. But CRISPR-Cas, there's multiple ways that you can deliver genes here. You know, there's, there's the classic non-homologous end joining, which is typically used to introduce these indels, which is a, a loss of function, or there's homologous directed repair where you provide arms of homology and it uses those arms of homology to specifically integrate to a specific site and have a non-frame shift insertion of your gene of interest into, or your construct into a gene of interest, okay? And just, you know, the last episode, we talked about how people are associated with Hans have used the HDR pathway to introduce uh, a substitution to correct uh, the CFTR gene and cystic fibrosis in intestinal organoids, right? So this is happening right now. Uh, and also organoid knock-in reporters have been generated, uh, but it's not efficient, right? Uh, in order to use homology-directed repair to generate knock-in reporter lines, you have to have them in S phase. It's, it's really woefully inefficient. You have to have these homology arms that are present. It's a lot of work generating these constructs. Um, and the reason why is because 
it's thought that using the alternative pathway, the non-homologous end joining, is really error prone uh, and therefore not really good for precision insertion <coughs> of a transgene. Um, but that's not always the case. I didn't know this until I read this paper, but non-homologous end joining can be accurate. It can be done without introducing these indels. It's just not very high efficiency. But a few studies have exploited this faithful non-homologous end joining to ensure targeted insertion of exogenous DNA into multiple organisms, zebrafish, mouse, human cell lines, even embryonic stem cells. All right. So here comes the Clevers Lab. They're going to try and consolidate all these insights and generate a really robust and efficient means of introducing transgenes into human organoids. They call it CRISPR hot. And that's just what it is. This is CRISPR homology independent organoid transgenesis. Okay. And it's spicy. It outperforms homology directed repair by about tenfold in achieving precise integration of exogenous DNA into desired loci. And this is the thing. There's all these studies that say, oh, if you inactivate P53, you can really improve the homology-directed repair, but that's a liability. You don't want to knock out P53. There's all kinds of off-target stuff that might happen in that case. This works without inactivating P53. So it's very highly efficient, and they use it to generate a bunch of tools all at once. In this one paper, they generate a whole slew of tools. One, they use uh, this approach to tag and visualize um, subcellular structural molecules that they use to identify rare intestinal cell types. Then they generate a double reporter where the spindle was labeled uh, and tubulin was labeled and they were able to, uh, uh, and e-cadherin was labeled. Um, so they were able to like look at different modes of human hepatocyte uh, division. And then finally, they looked at this tubulin tagging combined with a P53 knockout and showed a little bit of mechanism here that T P53 is uh, it's important for controlling hepatocyte ploidy, as you would expect. But uh, they had to tack on, I think, a little bit of mechanism in there to get it through nature subbiology. But I think regardless, this is a, an onslaught of tools that I think, for me at least, forget about go doing it in organoids. I'm going to lean into using this just for my cell lines. But for a lot of people out there, I think it's going to kick open the door to doing just primary cells. You get an organoid, you introduce the knock-in, you don't have to generate clones and have all the selection steps. So Again, bringing the state of the art forward, the Cleaver's Lab, once again. Cleaver's Labs did something pretty clever here. So I've done some fluorescent tagging myself using CRISPR, uh, focusing on HDR. And like you said, the efficiency is pretty low. You know, I've uh, only managed to generate a few cell lines just because you don't really know based on the locus that you're targeting if something's going to work or not. And that's the other thing that I think is important here. Uh, CRISPR is really variable based, you know, the editing efficiency under CRISPR is really variable based on where you're targeting in the genome. Some regions are super accessible to being edited via CRISPR and others, you can generate a thousand clones and you'll never get anything. And I think the cool thing here is that across the board, they show that, you know, multiple different locations in the genome are pretty susceptible to this NHEJ-based targeting. So I think that's really useful. Yeah, you're right. I thought they were just showing off by generating all these different lines. But you're right. The, the real key there is to show that in a multiplicity of genes in this one you know, approach, it, it, could, it could work with very high efficiency, very robustly. So like I said, a step forward. Uh, I can't wait to see what uh, the clever's that. Clever's Lab does next. Uh, I hope 
they slow the pace a little bit um, because we're going to have too much to talk about when we have them on. Oh, you know, they're not slowing down. They are the Cleavers Lab for a reason. Cool. So shifting gears a little bit, we're going to talk about chimeras. Okay, this is a this is a really cool topic. And this is actually one of the reasons I got into stem cell biology. I think if you talk about big picture, way super big picture, like 10 to 20 years down the road, the dream of a stem cell biologist and a dream of a translational biologist, one of the dreams in my opinion, is to make an unlimited supply of human organs, okay? So making human organs ex vivo. If somebody has a heart attack, forget about fixing the heart, just get a new one, all right? You grow it ex vivo and just replace it, you know? Just like a, you got a vending machine of hearts or something like that, right? So this is a topic that's been worked on for the last 10 to 15 years. And one of the pioneers in the field was uh, Hiro Nakauchi at Stanford, for example. Back in the day, I think like in 2010, when he was actually still in Japan, he managed to generate this mouse rat pancreatic chimera, and it got a lot of press. It was really cool. So the concept was pretty simple. You knock out PDX1, which is a master regulator of the pancreas, in, in mouse embryos, and then you basically complement the blastocyst of those PDX1 knockouts with rat pluripotent stem cells. So you're going to basically have a mouse that is completely wild type, except for the pancreas, which happens to be from a rat. Okay. So pretty incredible stuff, right? And you can think of the application. Maybe one day down the road, you're going to have pigs with human organs that you might be able to uh, to use for transplantation purposes. There are obviously a million different bioethical issues that you have to consider here, but the potential is definitely there. And so this paper coming from the lab of Daniel Gary, and first author is uh, Satyabrata Das, uh, once again in Nature Biotech. It's titled, Generation of Human Endothelium in Pig Embryos Deficient in ETV2. So when I was talking about uh, the mouse-rat-pancreatic hybrid, right, you have the pancreas, which is from a rat, but one thing you have to consider, especially for transplantation purposes, is that the vasculature is still from the host animal, okay? So ideally, down the road, you would want to generate an organ that's not only, like, for example, like a human heart in a pig, but also a human vasculature in a pig, potentially. And that's because you can maybe avoid some of these problems with like immune rejection, right? And so this is what they're hoping to do here. This is a pretty straightforward paper. It's only got three figures, but a lot of supplementary figures. And if you take a cursory glance at it, you're like, okay, you know, this is cool. This is possible. This is feasible. But then you take a deeper dive into the numbers here. They're like basically ridiculously low efficiency for this process. And this is the same problem with the, the pancreatic uh, mouse-rat hybrid too. You, they you know introduced like 1,600 or so embryos uh, of these hybrid em embryos into pigs. And down the road, they're only able to get like two or three, you know, maybe under 10 embryos that actually had the chimerism that they wanted. So let's walk through it. The first thing that they did here was to generate an ETV2 homozygous knockout, okay, in porcine embryos, pig embryos. They wanted to show and confirm that ETV2, which is this master regulator of the hematopoietic and endothelial lineages, like when you knock it out, 
you're going to get an, a, com a complete loss of the vasculature in, in pig embryos. So you know, this has been shown in, in mouse, and they wanted to basically confirm that ETV2 does the same thing in pig too. And that's that was our first figure. So, okay, so you're able to generate these ETV2 knockout embryos, and they don't have these hematopoietic and endothelial lineages. Great. Next step was actually to complement these ETV2 embryos with wild-type uh, pig pluripotent stem cells at different embryonic stages. And they're able to show, yeah, that works too. Again, at a very, very low efficiency, they can complement it. So you have a pig-pig chimeric hybrid here. All right, so that's feasible. And then the third figure comes in, which is probably the reason why this is in Nature Biotech. They came in and they introduced human iPSCs, human iPSCs into early stage pig embryos. Uh, early stage knockout ETB2 pig embryos. And they're able to show that at a very low efficiency, those human iPSCs can integrate into the pig embryos. And importantly, they can actually start to generate some preliminary primitive markers of vasculature and blood in these chimeric hybrids. Okay, and obviously for ethical reasons, you can't carry these things to term, sure. So they were very early stage embryos, but you can't deny the application here. And I think this is something that's gonna take off. One day we're gonna wake up and someone is gonna come out with that paper showing that, yeah, we were able to generate, you know, a chimeric animal with human organs in a pig or something like that, and then, you know, who knows what's going to happen after that? I think it's exciting. There's a lot of things you have to think about, especially ethically. But I really think that this is the future of the field. I'm less concerned about the ethics than the feasibility, Arun. But I, I, I mean, I'm concerned about the ethics. I'm not a, I'm not a bad <laughs> person or anything. But um, it's not like it's neural brain tissue. And I think that stuff's all far-fetched anyway with a little trapped human brain in a pig. But hey... We'll leave that for another show. I noticed you were really hedging in terms of defining whether or not these were real vascular and hematopoietic cells in there. And I understand why. And I'm sure the authors would do the same because, yeah, these are early days. And we've been trying to do chimerism forever. My PhD uh, dissertation was focused on mouse-human chimeras using human embryonic stem cells injected into mouse blastocysts. And I can tell you, it just didn't work. It worked with such low efficiency and only to an early, early stage, pre-gastrula or peri-gastrula, where we could see and graph. Because honestly, the developmental timing between mouse and human, it was a lark. But the idea that we ever expected anything in graph there was very far-fetched, if not insane. With the human and the pig, I can see that there's more, you know, compatibility, obviously, but you still got to worry about just introducing anything to anything that's a different species. The insult itself to the embryo is introducing a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a perturbation there. And then integration is another and then syncing up the timing. So, yeah, it's a lot to ask, I think, to get these things to functionally integrate in a large scale. And I wouldn't be surprised if we never actually get whole human organs or all human vasculature. Uh, you know, adult pig that gets to walk around um, just because I'm a real cynic and I'm skeptical. And more <laughs> than that, I think that the, the, the low-hanging fruit here is that instead of trying to clear out all the obstacles to with antigenicity, vis-a-vis -vis antigenicity in terms of transplant, why not just de-antigenize the pig as many people are doing in terms of making mm -hmm. these humanized pigs? So I wonder which will happen first, you know? Are we going to have like some kind of microRNA or modRNA that you inject mm. 
into the heart of a sick heart and it gets better? Are we going to replace it with some pig hearts that don't have antigenicity? Or are we going to inject our transplant chimera derived this and that? I think that the, there's a lot of little milestones that need to to work out for each patient along the path to chimeric organ transplant that may not be in place and more low-hanging fruit. Um, but just the feet, like you said at the beginning, this is amazing, the effort and the, the fact that they were able to carry this through. You said to me before the show, this was in review for two years. Yep. So it's a real testament to the effort. Con congratulations to Drs. Gary on, on this on this monumental feat. Yeah, um, I think I actually totally agree with you. I think the first application for something related to this is going to be immunocompatible pig organs. So basically knock out different, uh, you know, uh, antigens, you know, from the pig heart or whatever. Mm. I think that's actually something that's going to happen way before the, the chimeric side of things. And in fact, I think, you know, they are uh, in early stage not trials or clinical trials or anything, but there's are a bunch of biotech companies that are actually working on stuff like that. So I think that's probably going to take the forefront and might, might even happen within the next five years or so. Who knows? Yeah, I could see it happening before the chimera thing. Speaking of chimeras, you know, I'm not going to talk about this story, but uh, it's kind of related because it's a chimera story from Yanish where they looked at uh, neuroblastoma. So they made chimeras out of neuro, human neural crest cells in mice and then showed that they could form neuroblastoma. Pretty amazing. Check that out just while we're talking about chimeras. I don't think we'll come around to it in the next show. But also because of the neuroblastoma angle, I'm going to talk in my final roundup story about another horrible cancer in the brain, glioblastoma. I mean, glio is the worst cancer, arguably, of them all um, because it's really common. And despite, you know, we have all these aggressive treatments now, we've come to the real cutting edge, literally, with surgery and also chemotherapy, radiotherapy, gamma knife, all that stuff. But, you know, no, there's nothing we can do about glia. The survival of patients has really only modestly improved over the last few decades. Meanwhile, all these other cancers are like virtually cured. You know, we're above 80%, broadly speaking, general uh, in cancer survival, but glio, it hasn't really moved, right? So one uh, idea there is that we got to throw the CAR-T. You know, CAR-T has come out as a revolutionary approach for all kinds of cancer, specifically hematologic cancers, but now we're flexing them on the solid tumors uh, as well. And there have been some efforts to target glio using CAR-T, but the problem is that the response rates have been really disappointing, really low. Um, and one of the reasons why is because glio is a really heterogeneous tumor. Okay, so there's a high diversity of potential target antigens expressed in all the different cell types that make up the tumor. Um, so, for example, the authors here, uh, this is uh, a joint uh, lead authorship from Michael Barish and Christine Brown, who are at the City of Hope Medical Center in California. So they previously had shown that you can uh, target IL-13 receptor alpha-2 because it's highly expressed on glio uh, and frequently found on the glio tumors. But when you use CAR-T against this compound, you get recurrence of the tumor after a good response, but then you get recurrence with pretty much ablation loss of all the cells uh, that were expressing this IL-13R alpha-2. So the other cells, the other cancer cells that don't have this, they take the lead. And this is typical of cancer. You know, they're able 
to reach this equilibrium and then compensate for whatever you throw at it. Um, and unlike B cell malignancy, so famously the CAR T is like a cure for all these really refractory B cell tumors, cancers that uh, patients have come in on death's door and then they walk out cured, right? And that's because they have really homogeneous expression of CD19. Okay, that's a target antigen that's on all B cell lineages, and it's in all the malignancies that have been tested uh, to, to cure it, right? So it works, and it works to completion. Um, but there's a scarcity of the brain tumor antigen candidates that are both broadly expressed in uh, all the cell types in the tumor and all the heterogeneous cell types, but also really specific, not in normal, healthy brain tissue, right? So... Here's where the real innovation in science comes in. There's been, there's this thing that was previously identified. It's called uh, chlorotoxin, okay? Chlorotoxin, it's a uh, 36 amino acid peptide. It was originally isolated from the venom of the death stalker scorpion. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so this death, it was first identified actually for treatment of glio. I don't know how they did this, but it's awesome. Because this chlorotoxin is preferentially taken up by glioblastoma, they noted that and they, they linked it to a radioisotope to have like a smart bomb to try and treat glio. It's one of the therapies that's out there, but of course, glio just blinks at it. But um, you can exploit this same property, you know, that the glio cells like to take up the chlorotoxin by kind of hacking the whole CAR-T apparatus. You make CAR-Ts that these peptide-bearing CAR-Ts that exploit the G GBM, the glio binding potential of chlorotoxin, okay? So when the GBM takes up the chlorotoxin, it, it shows that as a flag and then the CAR-Ts can come knock it out. So they developed these CAR-Ts that use this chlorotoxin as a targeting domain. And they showed, of course, as you would expect, because it's in science translational medicine, that it had potent anti-glioactivity, targeted tumors that lacked expression of other classic glio-associated antigens, okay? So it did the trick. It tackled this heterogeneity that, as of now, has not really been addressed. Um, it caused tumor aggression in these xenografts, um, and there was no off-target, observable off-target effector activity against the normal cells. So, and just for a little bit, a little taste of the mechanism, because, you know, for, for time immemorial, I guess they didn't really care. No one really knew how chlorotoxin worked, why it was preferentially uh, taken up by glio cells or other neuroectodermal tumors. Um, and so to get a little glancing blow at the mechanism there, they do show that MMP matrix metalloproteinase 2 uh, is necessary. You need the expression on the, the tumor to get the CAR-T to target. So there's a little bit of mechanism in the M MMP2, but the real thing here is I like a hack. You know, Rune, I love a hack. And this mm -hmm. is a hack of combining a lot of known you know, properties of glio to try and, try and find another arrow in the quiver to shoot at glio. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if it bounces right off, but it's an approach I think that's innovative. We'll see if it works in humans. Yeah, glio is such a killer. Anything that we can develop to better target glio is, you know, plus. So this is fantastic. A couple of things. One, the whole chlorotoxin, you know, Death, what is it called? Death venom scorpion? What, what, is, it, what is it called? <laughs> the death stalker. Death stalker <laughs> scorpion. That's awesome. Anytime you can like repurpose stuff from nature, I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. I mean, there's so many things that we haven't yet discovered that may be super useful in treating 
all sorts of different diseases. So that's fantastic. Second thing is, you know, targeting the right antigen is the key for all these applications for CAR T. I remember a couple months ago, we covered a paper that was basically using CAR T to target fibroblasts in in the heart, mm. which is, you know, ridiculous application. So I think the door is open. Pandora's box is open. If you can figure out the right antigen, you might be able to target whatever you want with the CAR T therapy. It's I'm naive, okay? That's never that easy, right? But Anything that has a specific antigen, maybe you can target it with this approach. Yes, the revolutionary applications of hematopoietic cells, Arun, I will remind you. And this is why I love the blood. And I'm not the only one. I know our guest today is very invested in the blood by way of the bone marrow niche. And we're going to talk about that with her. But first, I got a message from Stem Cell Technologies. Take your human pluripotent stem cell cultures further with MTZer Plus from Stem Cell Technologies, the most widely published medium for feeder-free human ES and IPS cell maintenance is now formulated for enhanced performance and versatility. MTZer Plus reduces medium acidosis for more stable cultures all weekend long. Get out there and party, people. To learn more, visit www.stemcell.com slash M-T-E-S-R P-L-U-S, that's www.stemcell.com slash plus. Before we get to the interview, guys, I got to mention Arun's too modest to say it, but he just had a big review that dropped in Cell Stem Cell today as we're recording. It's a comprehensive look at disease modeling and drug discovery. It's a review called Multi-Lineage Human IPS-Derived Platforms for Disease Modeling and Drug Discovery out of the Svensson Lab, Arun Sharma, lead author. Get out there and check it out. You'll learn a lot. And now on to our interview with Dr. Joy Wu. All right, you guys. Today on the show, we have Dr. Joy Wu. She's Associate Professor of Medicine at Stanford University, also co-director of the Translational Investigator Program at Stanford University Department of Medicine. Dr. Wu directs a broad, basic, and translational research program. Her lab is currently studying stem cell therapies for bone formation and the prevention of cancer metastases to bone. Dr. Wu, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Thanks so much for having me. The pleasure is really ours. Why don't we start by just giving us an introduction to bones, all right? The lay people think of them as just a big hanger for the meat coat that is our body. Even though broken bones mend... And even though old bones break down, I'd say that the osteoblast is paid short shrift in stem cell and regenerative sciences. Can you remedy that for us by giving, giving us an overview of the relevance and the scope of bone in both health and disease? Sure. So bones are super cool. I think we all are familiar with bones, as you say, providing sort of structure and integrity to the body and protecting internal organs. Turns out that the osteoblasts along the bone marrow cavity also play an important role in supporting blood cell production. That was a cool area I got into as a postdoc. Um, and now also it turns out that bone and osteoblasts are uh, an endocrine organ, so secreting hormones that regulate things like your body's phosphate level. In terms of diseases, the one that I spend the most time thinking about is osteoporosis. It's a very common disease of aging. Uh, half of all women and about a quarter of all men over the age of 50 can expect to have a fragility fracture 
from osteoporosis in their lifetime. And right now we don't have a cure. So that's been an area of particular interest for us. So Joy, a lot of what your lab focuses on is the intersection of stem cell biology with bone biology. And I think there's a lot of hope for using pluripotent stem cell-derived osteoblasts and osteoclasts in combination with like tissue engineering approaches to generate bonafide bone in vitro. And in fact, you actually recently published a biomaterials paper on that topic and also more recently a uh, direct reprogramming related paper as well. And like anything else pluripotent stem cell derived, we have to think about cell maturity as a potential caveat. But from a translational point of view, how far are we from using stem cell derived bone for therapeutic purposes? Um, I think we're getting closer. There are many groups working on sort of deriving uh, bone forming osteoblasts from stem cells. One of the major challenges we've encountered is that uh, many of the assays for bone formation are done in aggregate sort of heterogeneous cell cultures. So for instance, looking for expression of osteoblast gene markers or looking for mineralization of the extracellular matrix. And those kinds of assays can easily become positive when only a few cells within that dish uh, have become an osteoblast uh, in fate. And so one of the approaches we uh, used was to use a fluorescent reporter uh, of a mature osteoblast. The bone field is still a bit limited in the um, availability of cell surface markers that have been so valuable for the hematopoietic uh, field. But using these fluorescent reporters, we can really see at a cell autonomous level when a cell has adopted a mature osteoblast fate. Um, and that really brought home that many of the protocols that we and others in the field have been using to generate so-called osteoblasts are actually very, very low efficiency. Um, and so we were uh, able to differentiate induced pluripotent stem cells into osteoblasts, but the yield is low and the time it takes, um, as it, many of the listeners will know, is uh, quite long. It can take several weeks to reprogram and then uh, more weeks to um, differentiate into a bone fate. Uh, so hopefully the direct reprogramming approach we have found um, is a higher efficiency and more rapid protocol. Yeah, so we're talking about at the cell level here, you know, these are the basics, but I mean, just fast forward for a second, you know, I'm thinking about clinical application and, and one notable thing about bones from a clinical standpoint is that we've come a, a really long way, in my opinion, uh, in hybridizing a bunch of different fields. You know, you have like advanced material science, biomedical engineering, surgical revolutions that are really changing the scope of treatment of injury. You know, we're talking orthopedics. Um, you've got all these surrogates for bones and joints and they're commonplace. You know, everybody has a grandparent or a parent or an uncle or somebody with, a, with some kind of pin in here and a fake hip and a, and a, and a new knee. Uh, do you think, though, that the, the stem cell applications, now going back to the cell level, do you think the stem cell applications of osteoblasts and related cell types can be like interwoven with these non-biological apparatus? You know, we've come so far with like materials in the body. Ultimately, are those going to go together with cells or do you think that the cells are kind of going to displace those surrogates? Yeah, it's a great question. So in terms of regenerative medicine in the bone field, I think there are sort of two 
uh, applications. The first, of course, is, as you mentioned, sort of localized bone repair. So for instance, 10% of fractures fail to heal. Uh, you might have a cancer that has uh, locally destroyed some of the bone. You might have a trauma-related accident where you really want to be able to uh, graft in bone tissue into the endogenous skeleton. Um, and I think that's where hopefully these stem cell-derived osteoblasts in combination with um, tissue engineering approaches, either biological or non-biological scaffolds. Uh, we've been looking into 3D printing. Um, those approaches, I think, are very exciting for being able to derive basically customized uh, bone grafts for patients. In terms of the other major area for regeneration, um, which is osteoporosis, I think that's a very different problem. Of course, that's a systemic disease and um, presumably affecting many of your 206 or so bones. Uh, so it's harder to imagine that stem cells per se will be useful on a transplant type approach. Um, and that's where I envision more that having sort of unlimited numbers of stem cell derived osteoblasts could be very valuable for uh, disease modeling, for high throughput um, medication screening, understanding signaling pathways, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, and there's also the blood, right? You know, I, everyone will tell you I love the blood. And you talked about already the bone, it's essential for regulating hematopoiesis. It's a big focus of your lab, interrogating the bone marrow hematopoietic niche. You said it. So I'm going to talk about it, you know, Arun says, oh, you know, you got to cool off with the blood. No, Arun, I'm going to talk about blood. All right. Blood Our guest brought it up. Right. Blood is it. Go for it. Um, so anyway, getting back to it more and more, the translational efforts are focused on these compound applications, you know, putting multiple cell types together in organoids or even in therapeutics. Um, do you think you can reconstruct the components of the bone marrow niche in vitro? from stem cells. I mean, wouldn't that be cool? Do you think that we can do that? You can do that? That's the holy grail. I mean, I one of the um, key sort of events along my training that led me to study the bone marrow hematopoietic niche was a paper in which, um, you know, mice are often subjected to uh, irradiation to knock out their hematopoietic stem cells. Um, and in this particular model, if you gave back a suboptimal dose of bone marrow only about half of the mice were able to survive. But if you instead gave these mice um, recombinant parathyroid hormone, which is a bone building medication when it's given once a day, it improved the survival of these mice to 100%. Mm. Um, and I found that incredibly uh, exciting, sort of studying the field of bone biology and thinking about the implications that we might be able to, for instance, give medications that act on bone to support blood cell production. And one of the reasons we got into using iPS-derived osteoblasts is I've already alluded to the fact that it's hard in the bone field to purify cells at defined stages of differentiation because we don't have the cell surface markers that say the you know, hematologist and the immunologist do. Um, but we are learning from our in vivo studies that uh, not surprisingly, cells at different stages of maturation. So for instance, your mesenchymal stem cells versus your osteoblast progenitors versus your mature osteoblast, uh, they are going to very likely play different roles in supporting different subsets of hematopoietic cells. And so we have been looking for a way to get purified populations of osteoblast lineage cells 
at defined stages. Um, and our first uh, attempts to do this were using iPS cells. So we're getting there. We have fluorescent reporters at different stages. Um, but what you alluded to is exactly, I think, uh, what would be super exciting, which is to build uh, an in vitro 3D um, organoid type uh, of bone marrow uh, niche where you can really introduce and manipulate the different cellular components, including blood cells, bone cells, endothelial cells are going to be an important component. Uh, so I think that's a very few, uh, exciting um, and hopefully not too far in the future possibility. Hmm. So speaking of clinical translation, Joy, you're the co-director of the Translational Investigator Program at Stanford, which provides clinicians a unique opportunity to actually do an intensive research program during their residency. And you're a physician scientist yourself, having done your MD-PhD at Duke. Go Blue Devils. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What is, what's it about the show that always attracts a bunch of Blue Devils <laughs> on the show? I don't know. I don't mind. But certainly there's a tremendous advantage to being well-trained both on the clinical and on the research side of things, especially if your ultimate goal is to do translational research, such as within the stem cell field. So as somebody who's gone through the MD-PhD training process and who's an advocate for the clinician scientist path, could you talk a little bit about the pros and cons of the MD-PhD road? I think our younger audience in particular, and especially students deciding whether they should do an MD-PhD would really appreciate your insights. Sure. Well, I think, um, you know, starting first from the idea of being a physician scientist, it's incredibly gratifying. We spent a lot of time talking about going from bench to bedside, and certainly that has been an area that's been a lot of fun for us. We started all this bone marrow niche work in mice. Uh, but then more recently, I've had a clinical fellow who was interested in the translational relevance of this and using some epidemiology approaches was able to show that um, at least in our first uh, studies of older men who have uh, declining bone mass, that we can find changes in their blood counts that go in the same directions as we find in mice. So that's been incredibly gratifying and exciting to see that hopefully this work that we do in preclinical models will translate into human relevance. Um, as a physician scientist, though, it's also fun to go in the other direction. So uh, you mentioned in the introduction that we've been also very interested in uh, bone metastases. Many cancers like to spread to bone. Um, and we and others believe that that's because many of the same signals and molecules that are involved in bone support of blood are also uh, sort of hijacked by the cancer cells. And, you know, I've had a clinical question where we're not really sure if it's safe to use these bone building medications in cancer patients because it might actually promote cancer spread to bone. Um, and therefore, we avoid using those clinically in women with cancer and osteoporosis. But I've often wondered whether that's really the case. You could argue sort of both sides of the coin. Um, and so... Uh, as a physician scientist, it was a lot of fun that we were able to sort of design a mouse clinical trial to see what would happen if we use these medications in mice with breast cancer. And in fact, we can show you that, um, show that at least if you're a mouse with breast cancer, these bone building medications actually cut the rate of bone metastases pretty dramatically. So we're not quite ready to do it in people yet, but uh, it's been fun to go back and forth. So I think for students who are thinking about a combined pathway, usually the first decision is PhD or no PhD. And that's a very personal decision. I tell students that uh, you're going to put in the same amount of time, whether you not you got the PhD or not. 
So you'll either get your research training during graduate school. Um, otherwise, for at least the internal medicine-based subspecialties, you will get your training uh, more as a postdoc uh, during your residency or fellowship years. So it really isn't about the time you're going to spend uh, a lot of the time. So I like to say sometimes it depends on whether mom cares that you have a PhD to acknowledge all the years that you spent in training. <laughs> um, I think the other thing to consider is that uh, in an MD, in a traditional MD PhD program, you're sort of learning both medicine and science simultaneously. So you're starting from ground level for both of those fields. Um, the other way to do it, and certainly there are many, many physician scientists who have an MD degree without a PhD. Um, but that typically means that you went through most of your clinical training. You're almost at the top of the um, food chain as an independent uh, attending type physician. Um, and then you're going back into the lab and sort of starting from scratch uh, uh, right next to the undergraduates who know nothing about pipetting. So, so sometimes that matters. Um, and then finally, the probably biggest consideration for most people is debt. Uh, many of the MD-PhD programs uh, provide scholarships for training. Um, otherwise, if you go to, through medical school, it's possible to come out with a great deal of financial debt. And that can be a burden when thinking about um, the feasibility of a research career. Wow, that's such a great assessment. Uh, I wish I had, had that in my mind. I've taken a, on an MD-PhD myself and made my mommy prouder than she is. <laughs> Um, I'm but sure I did. Yeah, we'll see about that. Mommy listening. Um, anyway, so the thing is, though, about that one part of that, I, I don't, I mean, you did address it in terms of the time, it is a factor, but it, more of the time in, within the scope of science and the advance of science. You know, one of the postulates of technological advance as we approach like the singularity, Kurtzwell, I'm not saying we're, this is a singularity type thing, but it's just a fact that the tech accelerates, right? And the rate of change accelerates. And this is, you know, exemplified really well by the computer and then the, the phone um, revolutions and quick succession. But in contrast, it seems like grad students are taking longer to get their PhD. The number of postdocs is increasing. The traditional academic route is increasingly competitive. Um, and, you know, it's about time also, like, between the, the delta between when you start and when you're actually in your own lab is so long that maybe science is just a different thing, you know, given the rate of change nowadays. Are, are there alternative paths that kind of address this contracted rate of change? Um, uh, would you advise a newly graduated you, you know, just graduated college, would you say in this modern day, would you say, hey, Joy, let's do this. Let's get the MD, PhD. Yeah, so I think that um, we are, you know, there are many people thinking about the physician scientist pipeline uh, and worrying that the numbers are small. And uh, when the NIH looked at this a few years back, um, particularly the numbers of physician scientists under the age of 50 is declining, which uh, doesn't bode well for the future of uh, the pipe of the physician scientist pool. And uh, for sure, training time has got to be a uh, significant part of that. Um, it's it's a tough nut to crack, right? I think that the um, factors that you list, the competition for faculty positions, the uh, difficulty of getting funding, all of these things mean that you really have to have, you know, significant publications. You need the data. It takes a lot of time to get the publications out. 
uh, and you know to be sort of ready to run a lab. Uh, so I think, and it, I've I've learned from talking to my colleagues in different specialties that PhDs um, are more or less common in different fields within the internal medicine specialty. So things like oncology, cardiology, and my own specialty, endocrinology. Uh, it's still the case that the majority of the physician scientists, um, not all, but the majority that we see coming into residency and fellowship programs do have MD-PhDs. Um, but I know the surgeons are very interested, of course, in not adding on to the length of their time and training. So they uh, they are less likely to sort of require, as it were, a PhD. Hmm. So, Joy, it seems as though your academic career has kind of come full circle, meaning that you actually started at Stanford as an undergrad and now you're back at Stanford as a professor. So that feels like kind of a dream. So you've seen the place change physically over the years, you know, Stanford University. And it seems like whenever I go back, there's a new shiny building that's gone up, right? Like a new hospital that just opened up, for example. But I think one thing that's really stayed constant about Stanford is that entrepreneurial and really truly collaborative spirit that makes Stanford a really special school. Do you feel the same way? So what is it that drew you to Stanford in the first place and drew you back more recently? And just what do you love about the place? Absolutely. I um, I tell students and uh, fellows who are visiting that I think Stanford really does have that Silicon Valley out-of-the-box ethos. And uh, I've had the great fortune to be at many uh, terrific institutions. But uh, thinking about Stanford, one of the things that I've always thought was really neat was how many people are doing just very creative, cutting edge approaches to science, whether it's technology or um, innovation, creativity. Um, and it always seems to me that at Stanford, it's almost a bonus to come up with a crazy idea. If you have some you know, outrageous idea, the first reaction of people around you here will be great. Let me think of how I can help you achieve that. Um, and so when we were uh, sort of considering different uh, places that we might land as faculty, uh, I really thought about Stanford as, you know, that's the sandbox where all the kids with the cool toys were playing. Uh, <laughs> and that's really where I wanted to be. So uh, it was um, really, I think, great fortune that it worked out for uh, us to come back to Stanford. Stanford Love Fest. You guys, both of you, running the same playbook, it feels like, you know, a little stint in the South at Duke, a little ivory tower over there in Cambridge, and now and then Silicon Valley, although I have to say, Arun, you've ended up in Silicon Valley, and you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> but, um, you know, you guys are building your life out West. It seems like you're settled there. And I'm over here in the Northeast. It's, it's 50 degrees. I should be thankful at this time of year, but it's still, you know, I'm a little bit depressed when I look at your lives through the looking glass there. seems a bit like I'm missing something. Um, but since I'm asking this question, you got to tell me one thing. Joy, you at least, Arun, maybe you too. Tell me one thing you miss about being in the Northeast that you miss about your time in Cambridge? Lobster. <laughs> it's just that yeah, simple. Lobster rolls. Not yeah. the intellectual pedigree. It comes down to the gustatory base pleasures of lobster. All right, fine. You answered the and question. I got to tell you, there is nothing like a New England beach town in summer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Summer in Boston is, you know, yeah. I, I, I talk about Boston in the winter and, you know, a lot of people know about Boston in the winter. Yeah, it's cold, but summer in Boston Beautiful. It's pretty special. Yes, I don't know special. if it's because the rest of the year the weather is not great, so you just appreciate <laughs> it so much more. But 
Yes, exactly. Like being on the beach in New England in the summer. Well, I think the, the 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 first is true. Eddie Murphy had a great joke about you know you give a starving man a cracker, and uh, I think that's summer in Boston. So uh, you know, enjoy your time out west, guys. I think you've made the right choice. But I'm sticking over here. You can take it or leave it. I'll keep all the sunshine to myself. So shifting gears a little bit, Joy, you're pretty active on Twitter. You've got around 2,000 followers, something to strive for. And a lot of people in the academic community, not including Daylong, hmm. have shifted to Twitter recently to actually help communicate their science and initiate discussion. And you've actually given some talks on the importance of using social media as a modern scientist. So in your view, what do scientists stand to gain or lose by being more active on social media? Um. I really have had a great time on Twitter. Uh, the, when I give these talks to different groups, often the first concern I hear from people is that, well, um, a lot of Twitter sounds very negative and a source for fake news. But I always try to convince people that what I call academic Twitter is a very different place. And uh, it's become for me my number one source for uh, new publications, uh, both in basic bone biology and uh, clinical osteoporosis. It's sort of where the Exciting new articles are uh, being discussed. You can have conversations with uh, sometimes the researchers who publish the paper, which is a great opportunity. I think it's a terrific way for people to uh, sort of self-promote a little bit. That's not always uh, easy to do and doesn't always come naturally to scientists. But I think it's important for us to sort of build uh, our brand and to share um, sort of where you're publishing, where you might be speaking, uh, and that kind of thing. And um, certainly I have, as you know, a strong interest in uh, training students, uh, physician scientists, physicians, scientists uh, of all types. And uh, it's a great place to uh, communicate with uh, young trainees um, and about the different options in a career in science or medicine. You guys are so active on Twitter. You got to answer this for me. Is there like a Trump equivalent in the science tweet sphere, like a rogue mean guy who, who tweets at 3 a.m. about crappy papers? <laughs> I mean, I'm not allowed to say anything, so. <laughs> the tweet I mean, master. Well, you said it's positive, right, outrageous. Joy? It's positive. Generally positive. Yeah. For me, it has been very positive. I've had uh, seminar invitations from people that I've met on Twitter. Uh, one of my favorite things that happens now is when I go to conferences, um, especially when students or uh, fellows come up to me and say, oh, I follow you on Twitter uh, and now you get to meet in real life. That's mm -hmm. always very fun. Um, and I you know, have several people I now consider friends who we first met on Twitter. Um, so, See, Daylon, it does work. Huh. It does work. I'll have to get on the Twitter, although I've said this before and the, the, the positivity of the science Twitter belies its inauthenticity, in my view, or belies its authenticity because, you know, real science conversations are brutal. But I don't want to get into that conversation right now. Uh, let's stay positive. And we're going to end actually on a less science focused, but science related note, Joy. We have a couple questions for you here. The first is just, you know, to, to give us a you know brief summary of your your aha moment or your greatest disappointment, your aha moment, great disappointment. Tell us about it. Well, I would say um, it's more like an ongoing mystery. So I uh, am a huge fan of sort of detecting, detective fiction and TV shows. But uh, we noticed um, we've been studying the role of parathyroid hormone receptor signaling in osteoblasts and shown that it's important for supporting blood cells. 
And what I had learned as a resident in internal medicine is that when you have bone marrow pathology, uh, hematopoiesis can shift from the bone marrow to the spleen or the liver in extramedullary hematopoiesis, and you get big organs. Mm. Uh, and so early on, when I was looking at these mice that have impaired PTH receptor signaling in bone, I expected to see a big spleen, basically, because I thought there would be problems with the bone marrow um, and that the spleen would take over. And in fact, we find these teeny, tiny, tiny little spleens in mm. the mice. Uh, they're sort of 80% decrease. And uh, this is a mystery that we've been working on for about 10 or more years. Uh, clearly, the signals that uh, lead to trafficking from the bone marrow to spleen matter because uh, clinically that is how you compensate for a failure of bone marrow hematopoiesis. Um, and so we're trying to sort of crack that mystery and, and have been for a long time. And we're pursuing a couple angles, but it, uh, stay tuned. We still don't know the answer. Yeah, I think those are the best. You know, every aha moment has one thing in common, and that is 20 years later, it's still revealing its secrets, right? So uh, that's that's definitely a good one. Um, maybe I'm sure along the way it hasn't been easy. Would you share with us maybe your greatest science blunder? Well, when I was in graduate school, I uh, once stuck the wrong kind of plastic tray in the autoclave and just Ooh. melted it all over the inside. Um, and now looking back, I'm sure that was not only a um, messy, but potentially quite <laughs> toxic error <laughs> that I subjected the entire floor to. Yeah, well, so that's right. It took why a long time for my lab to let me live that one down. <laughs> <laughs> we make those mistakes when we're young so that we can survive to do good science, you know, while we're tough. Uh, so, you know, it's probably for the better that you screwed that one up. Thanks for that, Troy. Uh, and thanks for this talk. This is a fine chat, a lot of fun, and uh, we appreciate all your insight and really giving us a really spot-on synthesis of so many things. Uh, thanks again, and, and we will stay tuned, and you'll have to join us again in the future to talk about what you're doing next. I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right, you guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us, you know, on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. They're going to have to do a lot to beat the one we had on today. Dr. Joy Wu, thanks for joining us. We're going to talk more about hematopoiesis in the near future, I hope. Thanks for listening, guys.